some texts are hard to understand. Some texts are hard to accept. And this text is both. (laughs) Uh, It's hard to understand and it's hard to accept. It's hard to understand because there's lots of thorny and detailed theological questions that come up in this text. What does this mean? What does that mean? And it's hard to accept because it runs absolutely contrary to the cultural moment we find ourselves in, in what we think about men and women and authority structures that God has ordained in homes and churches. But this is God's word. And that means it's good for us. Because all of scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16. Isn't it refreshing just to hear what is, what is real and true and solid? Isn't that refreshing, particularly in our world that seems to have pulled anchor from anything that's sure and stable and solid? It's refreshing to hear what's true, isn't it? So turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2. If you're new looking at your Bibles, you can find 1 Corinthians about halfway through the New Testament in the blue Bibles there that are in front of you. And when I say things like 11, 2, 11 is the chapter number, and that's big and bold. 2 is the verse number, and that's small and little. So 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2, as you're turning there, let me remind you of some context. We've turned to a new section in the book of Corinthians. In the first four chapters of the book, Paul lays out a gospel foundation. See, like many of us at times, the Corinthian church was off point in how they thought about life because the wisdom of the world was having more sway in their minds and in their hearts than the wisdom of God. And so what Paul says is he says, guys, that is not okay. You've got to build your life on the foundation of Jesus Christ and him crucified. The wisdom of the gospel is what you've got to build your life around. That's chapters 1 through 4. Beginning in 5, he unpacks the implications of this foundation. The outworking of the gospel is righteousness and holiness and contentment in the particular life that God has given you, chapters 5 through 7. The outworking of the gospel is living for the glory of God, which looks like living for the progress of the gospel in the lives of others. That's chapters 8 through 10. Now today he turns a page to the outworking of the gospel as it relates to the church gathered. How would God have us worship when we gather together as a church? That's the emphasis of chapters 11 through 14. So let's read the entire section this morning. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2 through 16. Starting in verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. 
Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her hair were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. Since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For a man was not for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, a woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Well, clear as mud, right? I thought about just having the welcome crew give shaws to everybody as they walked in. I decided against it. It's a tough text. Let me help you see that despite its difficulties, the principles God would have you embrace and live out in this text are quite clear. And let me just tell you up front what this text is about. It's about authority. What I want to persuade you of this morning is that when we gather for worship, we must worship in a way that reflects joyful submission to God's glorious gift of authority. Paul begins with a commendation in verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. What does he commend them for? Well, for remembering the traditions that he delivered to them. Remember, Paul planted the Corinthian church. And when he planted it, no doubt, he gave them apostolic instruction about what to do when you come together for worship. I'm sure he taught them of the importance of singing. I'm sure he taught them of the importance of preaching. I'm sure he taught them of the importance of prayer and and the importance of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And you know what? They remembered and practiced them. But as you might expect with this tricksy little church, they were getting a little off in how they were gathering together. And that's why we have chapters 11 through 14. And first up in our text this morning is head coverings. But actually, the issue at hand isn't really head coverings. It's authority. It's authority. Take a look at verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Paul lays out a hierarchy of relationships here. By the way, if if you just think there's a lot of details in this text, and there are, admittedly, you may be helped by following along in the outline that I have for you there. So, so Paul lays out a hierarchy of relationships here. Christ is the head over every man. Husbands are head over wives. 
and God is the head over Christ. What does it mean for someone to be head over someone else? There's two lines of thought here. One says head means source or origin. That's a possible reading, but not the right one. Head means authority. Consider just a few verses that make this clear. In relation to husbands and wives, Ephesians 2, 22, or Ephesians 5, 22 through 24 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. In relation to Christ, Colossians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. You don't have to turn there. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. So headship is authority. Husbands are head over their wives, just as Christ is head over the church. Also, don't miss this. Christ himself is under authority. The text says that the head of Christ is God. What does that mean? It means that Jesus willingly submitted himself to his Father. Behold, I have come to do, to do your will, O God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 8. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John chapter 6, verse 38. So what we have in verse 3 is actually quite plain and clear. Christ has authority over mankind, and specifically right here, husbands. Husbands have authority over wives, and God has authority over Christ. Now, already in your seat, maybe some of you are thinking, please, please nuance this. Please make it clear that you don't mean this or you do mean that. I get it. This can be an uncomfortable truth for several reasons. Number one, because our culture is allergic of any idea of authority in marriage. Number two, because in your own heart, some of you may have the same allergy. Some of the Corinthians apparently did. And then number three, because you may have seen this authority abused. But let's not let abuses of this truth or the world's reaction to it or our own sinful response to it cause us to downplay it. This is here. God has given us an authority structure. He has. Now, why is Paul bringing it up? I'll cover that in a second, but for now, I will go ahead and nuance a couple of things for you. First, submission does not mean lesser dignity, worth, or value. One commentator says, quote, Jesus submitted himself to the Father while still being equal in essence and value. Jesus is not inferior just because he submitted himself to the Father. So to a wife who submits herself to her husband is still equal in essence and value. A wife is not inferior just because she submits to her husband, end quote. Second, 
this is not teaching that the head of every woman is every man. In other words, this is not a general submission of women to men. It is a specific submission that assumes a marriage relationship. Now, let's just have a quick gut check. Do you believe that authority is a good thing? Children, do you believe that the authority of your parents is a good thing? Wives, do you believe that the authority of your husbands is a good thing? Church member, do you believe that the authority of your elders is a good thing? Authority is good. Why do we know that? Because it's God's idea, and all of God's ideas are good. And let's not forget, it was Christ's submission to his Father's authority that accomplished our salvation. Amen. Had Christ not willingly submitted himself to his Father, we would not be saved. Authority is good. Now, why in the world is Paul talking about authority in a passage about church worship? I am glad you asked. It's because we should worship in a way that shows that we are submissive to authority. Please take a look at verses 4 through 6. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered, that is his physical noggin covered, dishonors his head, that is his authority, Christ. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, that is her physical head, dishonors her head, her husband, her authority. Now, lots of verses today might cover your head with confusion, lame pun intended. Can I ask you to please stay with me and not chase rabbits in your mind? I can see the rabbits in your mind right now. Please don't chase them. I'm going to do my best to lead you well through this text this morning. Here is the gist of what these verses are saying. Men are to worship with uncovered heads. Women are to worship with covered heads. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors Christ. But every woman, who, every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her husband. Since it is the same as if her head was shaven. Now in this context, a shaved head was shameful for a woman because she looked more like a man. And it's also possible that a shaved head communicated immorality because Roman law required an adulteress to cut off her hair. That's why Paul goes on to say that if she will not cover her head, then she should cut short her hair. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. The point is, men are to worship with uncovered heads. Women are to worship with covered heads. To not do so dishonors the authority God's placed you under. Let me ask some questions because you're probably asking them. What's the covering? I think it's some type of cloth over your hair, something like a shawl. Now, some say that the covering is actually just hair. Paul does say in verse 15 that a woman's long hair is given to her as a covering. But in verse 5 and 6, Paul says that if a woman's head isn't covered, she should shave off her head. So if you're following, there is something other than hair that goes onto the hair. Does that make sense? Now, why a head covering? 
because it's a symbol of authority. It's a symbol of submission to authority. We know that because of verse 10. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. In Roman culture, when a wife wore a head covering, it had the effect of communicating to those around her that she was submitting to the authority of her husband and that she was a modest and chaste woman. On the flip side, if a wife did not wear a head covering, it had the effect of communicating to those around her that she was not doing so, which is why it was disgraceful for her to not have a head covering on because it brought dishonor to her husband. And so you can understand why Paul says, ladies, wives, when you pray or prophesy, you need to wear a head covering because he didn't want the wrong signals being sent that wives were being rebellious to their husband's leadership or otherwise being immoral. But I want you to see something. The issue here isn't primarily the head covering itself. The issue is submission to appropriate authority. In that cultural setting, a head covering communicated, I am happily submitting to godly authority in my life. This is important here because there's a principle here that does not change across time and culture. What's the principle? Happy submission to authority. But the expression of that principle does change across time and culture. In our culture, the lack of a head covering does not signify any rebellion to authority. Now, we'll, we'll talk more about how we actually apply this later, but I just want to make sure you get the point for them here. For the Corinthian church, in this cultural context, men were to worship with uncovered heads, women were to worship with covered heads. And the principle underneath it, which transcends time and culture, is submission to proper authority. Now, maybe you're not convinced of what I'm selling. Maybe you're like BJ. On what basis do you even think submission to authority is timeless? Who's to say they're not just both culturally conditioned expectations? Well, I'm glad you asked that question too. The next section helps us. Let's look at verse 7 through 10 again. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. The big idea here is authority. And it's authority grounded in creational realities. And creational realities, by definition, transcend time and culture. Creation authorities apply to all cultures at all times and in all places. And what we see here is the creational reality that man reflects God's glory. God's first creation was man. He made Adam from the dust of the ground. And breathed into him the breath of life. He is the image of the invisible God and he reflects God's glory. Then God made Eve from Adam. He put Adam to sleep and he took a rib from his side and he fashioned it into a woman. Thus, woman reflects man's glory. 
Further, you see that not only was Eve made from Adam, she was made for Adam. That's verse 9. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is the reality that God made Eve to be Adam's helper. She was to come alongside him and assist him as he leads out in accomplishing the mission God gave them. And so, based on both creational order and creational purpose, Adam is authority over Eve. And please keep in mind, this is before the fall. So he's the leader and she's the follower before sin ever entered the world. This was God's good design. It's headship and marriage. It's a creational reality. Since Adam and Eve, it transcends culture, it transcends time, and it's reaffirmed after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's Ephesians 5. There is a timeless authority structure in marriage. Hence, verse 10. That is why a wife ought to have a submission of authority on her head. Because she is under authority. And so she needs to carry herself in the congregation in a way that reflects that authority. And in this culture, that meant having on a head covering in worship. Now, to make it a little weirder, Paul also says, because of the angels. Now, what the heck do we do with that, right? I'm sure you're all like, I cannot wait to see what BJ does with that. Um, I hope you don't think I'm a magician. I'm really just trying to draw out what's here, okay? Um, It's actually not weird. Angels have already been introduced in 1 Corinthians 4.9. Speaking of himself and the other apostles, he says, we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. What that means is that angels have observed the suffering and mistreatment of the apostles from the heavenly realms. What that means is that angels have observed Paul's life and how he's been treated from above in the heavenly realms. Did you know that angels observe our worship service? Let that blow your mind. These heavenly beings... Look on at our worship service of the Son of Righteousness. And do you know what they want? They want God's creation order to be maintained. And this is yet another reason Paul teases out for the proper relation to authority when we gather together. We do not want to offend the angels who observe our worship. Now, let me just pause for just a second. And tell you, you may need a mooey, mooey bigger view of the significance of our gathered worship service. Do you think we're just singing? Do you think we're just praying? As though praying is ever just praying. Do you think we're just preaching the word? 
Do you think it matters not if you're here or if you just listen to the sermon later? Do you think it matters not if you're just wandering about the building, chatting with others? Hebrews describes new covenant worship like this. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Be sure the ultimate fulfillment of that is in a coming day. But there is something of cosmic significance that takes place when we gather together. Angels observe our services. How special it is to come together and worship. Amen? Now, a word to correct possible misunderstanding. You could misunderstand this creation stuff and think, is Paul, is Paul teaching that men are superior to women? No. That's why he says what he says in verses 11 and 12. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. This is protection against misunderstanding. Paul is not teaching us in this text that men are somehow independent of or superior to women. He teaches glorious interdependence here. We need each other, he says. Yes, although the first woman came from man, from henceforth and forevermore, every man comes from a woman, male and female. We need each other. And male and female, we're both under God as his creation. So there's equality. And so what I want you to do, and I want you to lock this down, remember this, difference in role does not mean Difference in value and dignity and worth. Men and women have differing roles in the home and in the church, but men and women are equal in the eyes of God in every way. Authority and submission does not entail inferiority. Now, Paul actually isn't done. This guy's just like a boxer that's ready for the next round and the next round. And he wants to make sure we're picking up what he's laying down. And so he makes an appeal to common sense in verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Again, remember, in this culture... Head coverings are a sign that you are embracing your God-given role as a woman underneath the authority of your husband. In this culture, wearing a head covering communicated happy-hearted submission, and not wearing it communicated rebellion. So, I ask you, is it proper in that setting? The answer, of course, is no. It is not proper for a woman to do that. Why? Why is it so wrong? Because it shows that you're not embracing God's design for you as a woman. Verse 14. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? 
But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. Zoom in with me here. If this just seems like a lot of details, what does Paul mean? He means that there is a God-given impulse for men to act like men and women to act like women. Follow me for a moment. In Rome, in the first century, men did not have long hair. They had short hair. Likewise, in Rome, in the first century, women had long hair. And so, if a man in this culture wore long hair, that would be disgraceful to God. Why? Because he's acting like a woman and not a man. He's rebelling against who he is and the role God has given him as a man. Likewise, if a woman in this culture were to cut off her hair, that would be disgraceful to God. Why? Because she's acting like a man and not a woman. She's rebelling against who she is and the role God's given her as a woman. That is why in this culture, it is absolutely necessary for women to wear head coverings when they prayed or prophesied because it communicated to all around them that they were embracing their womanhood to the glory of God. So this actually didn't only apply to married women, single women too. The point is this. While cultural expressions of manhood and womanhood do in fact change across cultures, in every culture, God would have men to look like men and God would have women to look like women. That's that's what he means when he says nature teaches us. It's a lot like Romans 1. There is a deep down witness in every soul that God is real and that God exists. God implants that deep within our conscience and something else he puts there is an absolute impulse that men should act and look like men and women should act and look like women. I, I know this sounds shocking to say in 2023, but this is actually just foundational humanity 101 and somebody needs to say the sky is blue. So what seems to be going on in Corinth is this. You had some ladies who were throwing off this idea of headship, throwing off this idea of gender roles, this idea of differences between the sexes. Not all that shocking, actually, given the Corinthians' other wonkiness. But what does Paul say about this? He says, that's not right, ladies. Ladies, you need to carry yourself as a woman, as a woman who is happily submitting yourself to the authority of your husband and living an upright life. That's what he says. And this applies universally. Look at verse 16. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, neither do the churches of God. To not follow Paul's instructions here is contentious. And all such behavior is off limits for the churches. So at this point, what I want to have you do, if your mind's not already blown, is step back and just ask, what do we do with this text? Let me suggest several things. And I'm going to start with some broad implications, and then I'm just going to get more narrow. First off, now more than ever, 
Church, we need to celebrate that God made us as male and female. We need to celebrate that God made men and God made women, and that's it. This entails a rejection of transgenderism and gender confusion. The idea that biology and gender are two separate things or that gender is a purely social construct, this is simply not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that there are two genders, male and female, and it has always been so, and we need to affirm this, celebrate this, and submit to this. And we also need to reflect it in the way we dress. Brothers and sisters, God would actually have us to dress in a way that identifies us in the culture we are in as either men or women. So this trend towards androgynous dress that you increasingly see in our culture, this is actually not a good thing. And we as Christians need to dress in a way that identifies us clearly to all as either men or women. That's number one. Second, We need to uphold and celebrate the goodness of God's design of headship in marriage. Men, you are to lead your wives. Ladies, you are to submit yourself to your husband. Brothers and sisters, let's not be embarrassed about this. Let's embrace this. Men, embrace your role as leader of your family. This means first and foremost, make sure your relationship with Jesus Christ is thriving. Make sure you're saying no to sin and yes to righteousness. Make sure your heart is tender towards Christ because that is what will make you a humble, honest, caring, loving, courageous, manly leader who leads not to please yourself, but the spiritual well-being of your family. Men, here are two ditches that you could fall into, both of which you need to repent of if you've fallen into them. Number one, the ditch of domineering leadership. Number two, the ditch of abdicating your leadership. And brothers, let me tell you that godly leadership is actually what your wives ache for. They long to follow a godly man. They really do. They want you to take the lead. They want to follow you. And ladies, make sure that this is the case. If you bristle against the the truth of an authority structure in marriage, if that if that cultural allergy against authority is affecting you, then you have some business to do with the Lord. This is the structure that God has put in place. Make sure you're embracing it in your heart. Here are two ditches that you could fall into. An overly critical spirit, so you can make it hard for your husband to lead because you criticize him or an overly independent spirit. You make it hard for your husband to lead because when you disagree with him, you just do your own thing. Now let me also say this. If you're concerned that there's something amiss in your marriage, that's something going on that is unhealthy. If you're concerned about that, you should speak to a more mature Christian. There may be things going on in your marriage that are not okay, 
and authority and submission are not an excuse for abuse, okay? Third, when we come together as a church, we should actually affirm and celebrate all that women can do in the gathered assembly. This text assumes that in the gathered church, ladies were praying and prophesying. Now, there are different definitions of what prophecy is. Stay tuned for chapters 12 and 14, coming soon to a congregation near you. All right. But however it's defined, prophecy, ladies were doing it in the public gathering, and they were praying in the public gathering. And this is important to affirm, because in conservative churches like ours, where we believe that the Bible teaches the role of eldership and preaching and teaching is reserved for men, in churches like ours... Sometimes ladies are restricted more than they need to be out of a fear of some kind of liberal creep, okay? So it's entirely appropriate for ladies to do the scripture reading on Sunday morning. Nothing wrong with that. Further, it's entirely appropriate for ladies to to pray on Sunday morning. Nothing wrong with that. Now, I wouldn't have a sister lead us in the pastoral prayer for obvious reasons, but there'd be no trouble for a woman to give a prayer of intercession or a prayer of praise or a prayer of confession. In share time, brothers and sisters, in share time, when I say, brothers or sisters, would you volunteer to pray? Ladies, don't hesitate. There's nothing inappropriate for you to do in praying there. You can pray. Now, finally, ladies, how about this specific head covering issue? Do you need to wear a head covering at church? You do not. Here are a few ways I think the principle underneath head coverings applies in our culture. All ladies, whether single or married, should dress in a way that doesn't blur the distinction between men and women. Clearly, in 13 through 15, Paul wants women to look like women and men to look like men. So, single and married ladies should dress in corporate worship in ways that make it clear, I'm a woman, not me, but you. All right. (laughs) Little levity. Married ladies. Married ladies, you need to carry yourself in public worship in a way that reflects happy-hearted submission to your husband's authority. Now, telling you exactly what that looks like is honestly kind of tough because I don't think there's an exact parallel in our culture to what head coverings were in first century Greco-Roman culture. Nevertheless, here are a few implications for you to consider. Number one, I think you should sit with your husband. (laughs) It would communicate something a little strange and maybe not right about your relationship with your husband if you were to consistently not sit with him. Number two, I think you should wear your wedding band. I mean, wedding bands are the accepted symbol in our culture that you're being married. So if you're married and you consistently don't wear your wedding band, that's sending some signal that you don't want to send. Three, I I also think you should refrain from publicly criticizing your husband or, or acting in any way that demeans him. So if he's sharing in share time, and I, I haven't seen anybody do this, praise God, but if, you're, if he is sharing at share time and you're 
rolling your eyes or ver- you know, miss, you know, moving over or something like that. that. That would be communicating something that isn't good, okay? And God would have us to be a church that's a public demonstration for all to see that we are a church that happily submits to his authority. I'd also say if you get up and share time, and if you were to air out your husband's dirty laundry, that would not be something that you should do, and it would be an implication of this text. You just want to act and behave in such a way that honors your husband. Here's the deal, and this is kind of zooming back up. The gospel does not free us from gender roles. The gospel frees us to embrace our gender roles. Our gender roles are good. They are a good gift of God in the midst of a world gone mad. And God would have us as a church to be a public demonstration for all to see of the goodness of his design. And so, brothers and sisters, we want to worship together and we want to live our lives together in a way that shows to the entire world that God's ways are blessing and beauty and bouncing. Now, one thing. Let me just say, I know that this is upside down from our culture. But the gospel has always been upside down from culture. Culture and humanity and us, each one of us, do not naturally align with God. We rebel against God. We rebel against His good authority, not just His authority in marriage or in the church, His authority over our lives. But think about the grace of God. How did He respond to us in our disobedience? By sending His Son to die in our place, to take our punishment upon Himself. And Jesus willingly did this to save us to save us from the consequences of our sin and to bring us back to God. And so God offers disobedient, non-submissive rebels forgiveness and life. And so if you're here this morning as a non-Christian, my final word is to you. God is the ultimate authority in your life. You have not submitted yourself to Him. And he will one day judge you. But he offers to forgive you, accept you, embrace you, and love you. Place yourself under his good authority by turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ for forgiveness and life. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as a redeemed people who long to display your glory. We thank you that your ways are higher than our ways and that your ways are good. We ask that you help us to continue to embrace and celebrate all of your ways, even those that seem contrary in our own hearts to the culture we live in. Help us, Father, to be a countercultural, happy people who display your glory for all to see. In Jesus' name, amen.